This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Michael Livingston, who is professor of medieval studies at the Citadel in Charleston, and he's also a historian of the Middle Ages, an incredible historian. He takes on challenges, shall we say, <laughs> and his latest is Cressy, Battle of the Five Kings. Now, I use the English pronunciation, but Michael, you would say something else. I, I would say Cressy, yeah. It's, uh, it's a word that, there's sort of the technical French way of saying it. Um, but then there's the way that English scholars have talked about it for generations. Okay. Yeah, and and that's uh, first of all, let's let's set the stage. We're talking about the battle in the 14th century. Yes, 1346. So this is the first major campaign and the first major battle, uh, land battle, of the Hundred Years' War. Okay, and the Hundred Years' War for those folks who didn't have Western Civ is between England and France. Right. Over some kings of England wanted to control territory in France. Yeah, I mean, you know, most wars don't have a single cause, right? I mean, this is true of, of any war. I mean, we could look at even the American Revolution. We may sort of talk about it as, you know, one thing happening, you know, overthrowing the yoke of British tyranny or something. But there's a lot of other things taking place. Same is true of a hundred years' war, but but when we boil it down, it is a dispute over sovereignty of lands in France. So the kind of bottom left corner of France was a place, went by various names, Aquitaine, Gascony, uh, that was held by the English, even though it was French land. And that word held is kind of important because that's the underpinning of the problem, is that in the Middle Ages, you, for big, vast quantities of land like this, you made a, a sort of formal process of agreeing to hold it for the king who really owned it. And that process involved a thing called homage, where you're sort of acknowledging the other person's in charge, and I'm just borrowing it. And literally on knee, you're giving. Very often, very often, this formal procedure is actually kneeling. So uh, when you have these lands that are held by English, but they have to do this homage process to a French king, like the French king was cool with that, but the English kings were not very excited about this, saying that the other king is kind of, uh, superior to me in these lands, at least. And over the, the the years, different kings had dealt with this in different ways. They'd kind of, you know, well, you don't quite have to do the ceremony that way. You know, they made negotiations, got around it. Blood had been shed, but not this kind of big blow up. Um, this big blow up happens when King Edward III of England says to King Philippe VI of France, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, we're done with all of that. And in fact, Edward believed he had a claim to the throne of France itself that was superior to that of the sitting king. And so he said, not only are we not going to do the ceremony, but actually I, it all belongs to me, in fact. Yeah, and, and that's a complicated genealogy, but his claim was not without merit. It was, it was yeah, it had merit. Um, the, the issue was whether or not you could claim descent that went through a woman. That was sort of the, the 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 sticking point, or at least what people later decided was the major sticking point. Um, we don't have a lot of sense that this is what the French were saying. They mostly were saying at the time, "No, you're you're English. <laughs> we, we don't want that." Um, they do come up with this kind of theory, but but yeah, it's he he does have a claim. I mean, it is uh, you know a defensible claim. Yes, and we won't get too much into the past, but the key, one of the key figures in this was, of course, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Not to mention the William the Conqueror stuff with, uh, with Weather Norm. I mean, it's it's it is the royal households are really mixed up. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. It's a total mess, uh, and it and it does go back. I I start this book off with with 1066 with with the Battle of Hastings and William the Conqueror uh, because that sort of to me kind of sets the ball rolling for this eventual thing happening. Well, and we get down to Eleanor of Aquitaine's sons, yeah. and that's how things get divided up. Eleanor of Aquitaine is such a fascinating figure. Uh, she's amazing. It was, you know, one of the things I do in the book is I spend the first kind of front half of it getting people on the ground for 100 years of war and why this is happening. And, and there's a kind of a chapter that involves Eleanor a lot. 
and writing it, I just kept wanting to talk more about her because she's just well, so she fascinating. Was, she was Queen of France. She was Queen of England. Yeah. But the most, most important thing was Aquitaine, which was her own inheritance. And yeah. as a woman, she inherited that. Yeah. Which, which is one of the reasons that people are like, well, this whole you can't get land through the right of a woman. Like, we'd been doing that. <laughs> Why is that no longer okay? Well, because it would mean an English king is king of France. That's not good. Okay. You you threw in the Battle of Hastings, 1066, William the Conqueror in, in yeah. England. But that's that's just background to – Yeah, that's way background. I mean, Hundred Years' War is something that happens in the 14th century. Yeah. Uh, but that does sort of lay the ground for there being uh, holdings of land on both sides of the English Channel, which is problematic when you have kings on both sides of the English Channel. Okay. So we come to Edward III, and let's talk a few minutes about him. Yeah. He wasn't exactly the most popular king. He he wasn't. You know, Edward III is is somebody who his reputation, I think, today is based on these key events in his in his early reign, Crazy being one of them. These triumphs that 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 took place. Um, but at the time, he wasn't exactly Mister Popular, as you say. Um, he's Running low on finances, he's almost broke. He has borrowed tons and tons of money to 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 keep his actions going, and, and especially from Italian yeah. money lenders, yeah, from Italian banks, yeah. So, in, in fact, in the end, at Crazy, when we when we do get there, we have a bunch of sources that are really important for understanding the battle that are Italian sources, and it's because the Italians were watching so closely. Because that's where our money went, right? That's where all our money is. We loaned this guy this money. How's he doing with it? And he hadn't been doing well at all. He he had been doing very poorly up until the Crazy campaign, which, I mean, even that campaign should have gone very poorly for him. It ended up going well, but uh, there were lots of near-death experiences, essentially, for his cause, even in this yeah. victorious campaign. Yeah, his his military actions in Scotland, he had, he had already made one attempted invasion of, of France. Yeah. But this one was almost, uh, in terms of D-Day, that kind of major effort. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about an army of, what, 14,000 men? Yeah, probably at least, right? At least that many men. And that's just the tooth of the army, right? We, you know, we talk about tooth and tail. Yeah, so the logistics that support that. There would have been enormous numbers of other people there that are just supporting these fighting men. So yeah, it was a huge endeavor. And I, I love the fact that you bring up D-Day because that's where they land. I mean, it's just up up the shore from Utah Beach. Uh, so that that little stretch of the Cotentin Peninsula, that's where these guys land. Then uh, for the same kind of reasons that that they would land there you know, 600 years later, it's the shortest way across the channel. It's a short way across. <laughs> yeah. And it's got great beaches. Like, it's a good landing area. Yeah. Well, normally, I don't get carried away with statistics and munitions and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, the G4 can just take care of all of that stuff for <laughs> yeah. me. But when you had the armorer from the Tower of London, and you were walking the field, and he provided you with figures yeah. as part of this invasion for We talked about 14,000 men and all of that. The armor at the Tower of London provided a total of 5,518 bows, 30,126 bowstrings, 11,206 sheaves of arrows for the initial campaign. Each sheave contained 24 arrows and a standard allotment with two sheaves per archer. The total number of arrows, 268,944. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> somebody was busy. And you say that's probably an underestimate because you, archers usually had their own. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe that's very much an underestimate. But that's that's what we have the receipts for. Yeah. But, I mean, that gives you an idea of the scope of this thing. Edward yeah. was really going all in. Yeah. I think at this point he didn't have a lot of choice because he's running so low on money. Uh, as you said, he tried to invade before. It had not gone well. Uh, he needs to have a big success here. And he especially needs to take the pressure off of the main French army who was actually in the south of England attacking the English holdings there. And he needed to kind of relieve that pressure. And so he thought, well, hit northern France, hit it in this kind of force, and that will, you know, get me something. I think it's a, a big question. I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. We don't really know what his plan was uh, when he lands. 
we we have what he and others his or his let's just say his PR men his PR men yeah said afterwards what he was really trying to do right uh, but his movements don't they don't match that they don't match up yeah they don't match that at all and 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 yeah it's exactly right what we have is after all of this is done after the campaign is done his PR people say well that's what we meant to do is is what we did so good for us right but but yeah you look at the actions on the ground and it's like that's that's not what you were planning to do so we're trying to triangulate what his initial plan was all right this total campaign lasts what about three months four months it depends on when you stop the campaign well, uh, well, well let's stop with calais yeah i mean because that's the thing you get to calais and then they're yeah. and then they're they're there for a year uh <laughs> doing the siege but yeah, it's just a couple months and i mean it is a a long slog that they end up doing. Again, I don't think this was the intention to, you know, march from Normandy all the way to Calais. I, I can't imagine that anybody in their right mind thought that was the right thing to do here. But the initial impetus, I think at least, is to establish some kind of beachhead here and force an agreement uh, or force a fight uh, with Philippe. Yes. I, I think that's an- another thing about medieval warfare is – People didn't necessarily go around looking for a battle. Yeah, not usually. Uh, I mean, good good generals don't, uh, for the most part, right? Because because battles are inherently chaotic. Like they can they can go awry despite your best plans. So you only want to fight a battle if you really feel like you know you've got things uh, under control. So he he was hoping really to have Philippe challenge him. Yeah, he would beat Philippe, and therefore he would get his crown. That, I mean, that's initially his goal is he wants to be king yeah. of France. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is he wants he wants king of France, but he also needs he needs uh, evidence of a victory for his financial backers, right? You know that even if I don't win at this time, I need to be able to prove that that I can actually accomplish something with your money, so I can get more loans. And it also back home, the nobility is not really happy with him. Right. They don't think much of him as a as a man, and here he can establish himself as right. again a, a leader. I mean, leader. that's he needs a win, and he needs the win like whatever form it's going to be. Right, he needs something that he can claim to be a win. Uh, you know, when he arrives, I I think it's he's trying to establish this beachhead. But again, we don't really know. We do know what happens, of course, which is that the English steamroll down the peninsula something they really weren't didn't think was going to happen yeah it looks like they didn't expect this to happen so quickly and as part of the way things happened in medieval warfare rich towns got sacked put to the torch oh yeah uh, so he's he's already financially coming out ahead yeah he's making lots of money really quickly uh when they take san lo uh, we have sources talking about the enormous wealth that comes out of san lo and all of that pales in comparison to what he gets uh, when they take the the rich city of Khan, uh, which is which is a, a huge shifting event for the campaign. We know that after the English take Khan, uh, Edward writes letters home with new plans. So we know at that point he's changed his plans. Uh, Michael, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Michael Livingston about his latest book. Crecy and the Battle of the Five Kings. Michael, we've got uh, Edward and his army. The capture of, the, of that, that French city hinged on the defenders making a crucial mistake. A crucial mistake. Yeah. Yeah. They, the, the city of Caen, it's actually a hard thing to defend the way it was, it was kind of laid out. But they make the decision to place their, their forces, which are not uh, you know, not like a military army. This is like a militia, kind of like the people, like we're going to defend our homeland. They put them out in front of their walls instead of like, let's just use the walls as best we can and try and hold off and get stronger over time. They put them out in front of the walls because at least as what our sources say, um, there were some town, and this was very typical, town that had spread beyond the walls and people didn't want to give up those homes. So they tried, tried to defend out in front of all that. Which doesn't work well when you have 15,000 men or whatever coming at you who are trained and have all these hundreds of thousands of arrows. Like, and I think, well. th- think we need to put in a moment why those English archers were so important and the, cut, the kind of weapon they used. Yeah, they use a longbow, which gets 
in 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 British, I would say mythology, which probably gonna get me some hate mail. This this idea of the longbow is like it's like this machine gun. You know, they have this idea you can just launch all these arrows and they they go through armor and all this stuff. That's not really true, but what it is, nevertheless, is a weapon that can fire at a fairly high rate. I say fire, even though it's not a gunpowder weapon, but it can loose at a fairly fairly high rate. Has good range, and they have thousands of these men. And that's not something that people have seen in France before. The people in Scotland had seen this kind of thing a little bit, but not in France. And when you get this kind of volley of arrows, I mean, even if only everybody only takes one shot, like that's a lot of arrows that are coming screaming out of the sky at you. And if you're not, I mean, even if you are a military uh, you know, veteran, you've never seen this kind of thing before. It, it, it would be absolutely frightening. Well, somebody say, oh, these guys got armor. Yeah, they've got armor, but their horses don't. Their horses don't. Yeah, if you're on horse and these arrows come in, yeah, you're, you're not going to be on horse for long because uh, the horse isn't going to be happy. Yeah, and most of these people probably don't at con. They, they, many of them don't have armor. I mean, they are, they're out there, you know, with the pitchfork kind of thing. Uh, and this shows up even as it kind of ar- arrayed and the men, the English kind of lined up like you had to start thinking this is a this is a bad idea and i think it really only takes one shot and this this uh kind of ragtag army in front of Khan, french army just dissolves and dissolves back through the city and the english commanders edward is calling for his men to restrain to not chase after them i he's worried i think that this might be some kind of trick or something some kind of ruse they're going to sucker us into the city and then slaughter us all. But his men don't listen. He loses command and control. His men go screaming after the fleeing French. Uh, and this, all this happens so quickly, the, the gates aren't closed to the city. And so the English just steamroll the city. It's, it's, a, it's not how anything was supposed to work, but, but it's a huge victory, right? It's a, I, you know, tripping into victory is what it is for the English. And Khan's a rich city. It's a, this is where William the Conqueror is buried. This was his kind of, uh, you know, his triumphant home, home base. So it's a great PR victory uh, to send back home. It's, it's awesome for the English. It's horror for the French there. And this is just the first. You already mentioned then, then comes St. Lowe. He's, he, he's just marching through the countryside. Yeah, he's just, he's just marching down the road. He's, he's really just following the roads. The roads are important. Yeah. You know, he's not, he is not marching over field. And he's smart enough to use the roads. Yeah. Uh, it, Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. To me, I don't think about it as, as him being smart. I, I think about it as more our ignorance that we don't assume that he would use the roads. But but yeah, too often I find historians, well, they went this way. And I'm like, there's no road. Like, they have hundreds of wagons. Are you kidding? Like, they're going to use roads. Like, have you never walked on a field? Like, logistics are huge. and And... It would have been innate to these to these people. Where is the main road? Well, that's the road we're taking because we need it. Yeah, it's and, a huge and, number of men, and some of the roads were old Roman roads. A lot of them were old Roman roads. Yeah, old Roman roads. Whenever I'm called in to, to analyze a conflict, the one of the first things I'm doing is mapping all the roads. Then I go all the way back to Rome and uh, where were the Roman roads? Where are those things? Which ones are still in use? And kind of overlaying all these these maps basically to build up. Well, this is what the landscape was when they were there, in this case, in, in 1346. And, of course, waterways are important as well. You've got – they are barriers. Yes. And 21st century French landscape is far different from what it was in the 14th century. Yes. Thanks to 18th century canal building. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so, yeah. Uh, rivers are enormous obstacles. Uh, you really need a bridge or a ford. Right. And and you want the bridge. You don't want to use a Ford. And I think you need to explain why you don't want to use the Ford. So a Ford is I mean it tends depends upon the Ford, right? But you know, if you are in water trying to to, to cross, you're you're fighting the the river to whatever degree, um, which is an element of uh, you know of chaos, of potential disorder. And you're in a vulnerable position. 
you're on low ground, you have to get up and over banks, you've got the possibility of getting stuck in the mud. And if you get hit by an opposing force, this is this is nightmare fuel. It's just you don't want to use a fort. You want a bridge if you can. And really, you want to avoid either if possible, because whether it's a bridge or a fort, it's a constriction point, right? This is a point where you're not a thousand men wide, you're 20 wide or whatever, you know, however wide that, that, that gap okay. is. So after the first two big cities, after St. Lowe, yeah. Edward's wondering where Philippe is. Yeah. And Philippe really got kind of caught by surprise. He did. You know, he knew the English were coming. You couldn't keep this big an army a secret. <laughs> He's had no idea where. He assumed, and, and I think it, given the circumstance of totally valid assumption, he assumed they were heading to the, to the south of France where there was existing conflict at the time. So this was quite of a brilliant move. And now Philippe has to gather, essentially build a second army on the fly, uh, which he tries very hard to do. It does, there's a delay for that. So by the time that uh, Edward has taken Caen, that's when Philippe is now getting up into that area. And he gets up to Rouen, uh, which is on the north bank, the further bank of the Seine. Whether or not Edward kind of picked up on that, we don't know. He leaves Caen and starts marching towards Rouen, like as if he thinks he can just go across. Like this isn't going to be a problem. And seems to be surprised by the fact that Philippe is on the other side of the river, is holding the bridges or has knocked down all the bridges on the Seine, forcing Edward to march up the Seine which is a direction that Edward doesn't want to go because that's deeper and deeper into the heart of France. <laughs> um, and yeah, actually it's pinned down uh, just outside the walls of Paris at Poissy. And there the bridge had been knocked down, but the, there were stone supports in the river that were still there. They couldn't, the French couldn't knock those down. Um, so they'd knocked down all the wooden structure, but the supports were still there and the English could rebuild that, which they did secretly. <laughs> Okay, Michael, we've got uh, Edward and his army. They are building bridges. Yeah. Philippe issues a challenge. Philippe does. Yeah, he eventually, you know, by the time that Edward is now at the gates of Paris, Philippe's idea of not letting him cross the river has uh, weakened the English. They are, they are not really in a good position here. They're in the middle of foreign territory. And Philippe, yeah, says, I'm, I'll agree to fight to you on this big field, south of Paris. We can fight and, uh, you know, the best man win kind of thing, uh, which is exactly what Edward has been saying all along he wants. But in this moment, he doesn't show up. So Philippe goes south to this to this field, like, all right, where, where is the man? Well, that night, Edward had finished rebuilding the bridge across the Seine and bolts, absolutely bolts. I, you know, I found a document written on the campaign that is the receipts of the king's kitchen. And it records where we were uh, any given night. So, so you're, you're really one of your best documents yeah. is the chief cook. Is the chief cook. The, the, yeah. mess, the mess sergeant. Yeah, yeah. The guy who's like keeping track of where are we, you know, how many fish did we, did we eat tonight? Uh, and he's recording every night at, at where they are. And it's, it's one of these, I talk about this in the book, like we ignore so many sources that are valuable because they're not what people think of as being a source, right? This isn't a story of Crecy, uh, of the battle or anything like, it's just a sequence of receipts, but it's pretty important to know where the King's tent was through this entire campaign. And it allows us to figure out uh, not only where, but the rates of speed that they were marching at, right? When they go slower, when they go faster, what that has to do with roads, everything. And, and what it shows here is as soon as uh, Edward crosses the Seine, uh, he's on a dead run north. He's trying to get away as fast as possible. One of the things I think we need to put in at this point is they started off with a lot of supplies in terms of food yeah. and fodder for the thousands and thousands of dray animals. They're living off the countryside. Yeah. And they can't go back the way they've come because they've... This, <laughs> they've taken it all. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> like Sher like Sherman through Georgia. I mean, they would... There's nothing there. They either took it or they destroyed it. Right, right. So you can, you know, this is uh, th this is a march that can really only go forward. And where are they headed now? So we again have this question like, well, well, what's really happening? Because most of our sources are written after all of this. And so they're like, oh, this was the plan. 
uh, where they're heading is north. They're heading to the Low Countries, what we now think of as as Belgium. Uh, that's where they're headed because they have allies there. There is another force there that is allied to Edward. So this is going to be a way to get safety. If I can just get up there, I'll be fine, uh, and I'll have food. I'll be I'll be good. I can take ship back to England. Good. Um, he's, he's he's trying to get there. His, his problem becomes that Philippe has faster roads. And so Philippe is able to get men around him, in front of him, to the next big river, which is the Somme. Philippe gets up there and does the exact same thing that he did the Seine. He occupies or knocks down all the bridges that are in front of the English. So now they can't get across that river. But. But. He finds a ford. <laughs> he finds a ford. And it, you know, this, this event should be better known because it's so crazy what happens. It's not better known because like two days later, the Battle of Crecy happens and that overwhelms everything in memory. Uh, but it's called the Battle of Blanche Tack. Blanche Tack is a word that means white stain. Uh, we think it refers to like a chalk underlayment kind of under the river. And Edward has an informant, probably a prisoner of war who says, yeah, I, I know a, a way across this river that's not a bridge. Uh, and it's this little local ford. We don't know exactly where it is. We know it's between uh, the city of Abbeville, which then was a walled city with a bridge. He, he can't go through there. And the mouth of the Somme, the sea. Somewhere in there was this, was this local ford. And it was a low tide ford only. So at this point, Philippe is behind... Edward pushing him against the Somme. He's only like a couple miles away. Um, and there's French on the other side of the bank, kind of like just in case anybody tries to get across somewhere. And Edward has no choice, but to do exactly what I said earlier, you shouldn't do, which is to cross a ford un under attack. He has to wait until low tide. It's hard to hide the fact that there are 15,000 men or whatever, like milling around on the side of a river, like ready to go. So it gets seen. Uh, and by the time he is able to start trying to make this uh, march across the ford, which cannot have been wide, um, there are French on the other side with crossbows and, and everything to start and, shooting at them. And that's a totally different kind of weapon, the crossbow. Yeah, yeah. Packs a lot of punch, doesn't have quite the range that uh, that a longbow has and and to me most importantly takes a lot longer to load and loose so a trained longbowman can put on a lot of shots while a crossbowman's having to fiddle with loading his weapon and the crossbow requires uh sort of two hands sort of full body to load so you're absolutely vulnerable while you do this so so yeah these are these men are sort of gathering to defend this ford and the English have to charge across through the water, being shot, uh, to try and push and make a beachhead on the other side. And the English were desperate, and they triumphed. They triumphed. Yeah, they make it across. It, it's what, like they had no business making it across, but they did. It's kind of an amazing escape. They, in fact, according to one of our sources like the last wagon gets across at that point, probably being floated across because the tide's coming in when Philippe shows up behind them and is, and, and actually sits there for a little bit contemplating making the charge across the river himself, which at this point the tide's coming in, this would be suicide, mm -hmm. but he's so enraged at the idea that the English have got away again, that he's, that he's almost willing to, to make that attempt. Uh, Cause it is, it, it is, insane <laughs> that Edward did this, but it worked. And he, he really had no choice. He was copped in a rock in a hard place. In 19th century England, when everybody got really romantic about the Middle Ages, yeah. there was an incredible drawing that actually shows Edward fighting himself with, you know, on his charger with, with, <laughs> with uh, water up to the horse's saddle. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't quite that way. Yeah, probably not. Uh, probably not. I mean, Edward himself probably did not fight in that fight. It was probably, you guys go ahead. And uh, once we got a safe beachhead, I'll, I'll go ahead and cross. But uh, certainly the image that people, you know, ultimately want to 
to believe is that the great leaders are, are kind of the ones in the, in the thick of it. And sometimes they were, right? Alexander the Great was famous for this. Well, actually, Edward had two subordinate commanders throughout this. One was his son, the famous Black Prince. Yeah, the man who become Black Prince, who's yeah. 16 years old. Yeah. And another noble, and a nobleman. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're across the river and up against the woods. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, it, it's, it's a, I say funny, obviously it would not have been funny then, but it's sort of ironic. He, he keeps managing to get out of the frying pan and then he's in a fire, right? And he jumps out of the fire and he's in something worse. Uh, he's made it across, yay, but they had to leave a bunch of their supplies back on their side of the river. So that's a problem. And now they've got this vast woods called the Forest of Crecy in front of them, which you can't really go through. I've, I've got a couple of colleagues who think that he marches through this. And I'm, my response to that is, I don't think you've ever been in the woods before. <laughs> um, like you can't take 15,000 men in wagons. No. So he's got to go around it one way or another. And going one direction would take him close to the sea and marshes, which is going to cause its own set of problems. The other direction takes him closer to Abbeville, which is where the French are headquartered. Uh, it's not a good choice. And so, so what choice does he make? He goes closer to Abbeville. He, so he's marching towards... He's where, marching towards the enemy, but he, he has to get around the forest. And there are roads over that direction. So he, I think, is moving as quickly as he can to get those roads and just hoping he can outrun the French. It's... I mean, what would he have considered as odds at that point? I can't think that he thought his odds were very good at this point. But that's about the best choice he's got. He's making the best of a bad situation. But then he makes a stand. Yeah. Yeah, he, he recognizes that the French have, have outflanked him. So as I reconstruct things, again, coming following the roads and the, and the clues we've got, Philippe leaves uh, before the break of dawn with his own uh, vanguard force and bolts around the main roads to get in front of the English. He recognizes this, this is what he's going to do and gets out in front of him, at which point the English, like, we got French behind us and in front of us. We have to make a stand. What's the best spot for us? And they locate a site that is going to do the best for what they want uh, and take position. All right. We don't think of medieval warriors circling the wagons. Yeah. Uh, not quite. But they do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they do. But they create a barricade with right. their wagons, but leave an opening. Yeah, which is the the tactic the English had perfected in Scotland. Yeah. So this this thing is called a wagonberg. Uh, is their technical name for it? But yeah, it's circling the wagons. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. We're gonna make a wooden wall on the fly. <laughs> we have this. Uh, in the case of Crecy, we think that they actually tipped the wagons on their side. You know, so that they presented a, a kind of wall of yep. wood, as it were. So yeah, they do this. They 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 ring their position with this, and they do, as you said, leave this opening, which is not only for them to get out potentially, but I I think in the main to invite attack here, right? Say so attack us in this opening, mm -hmm. please. And in fact, Edward sends out his son, the future Black Prince. 16 years old, as the vanguard. He, send, he sends them out and lines them up in, in front of this gap. You know, they'd have banners. They're the bait. They're the bait, yeah. Come come take the Black Prince, please. Well, now, we keep saying 16 years old. Yeah. And yeah, he's a teenager, but in, it's not that unusual. I mean... It's not unusual. It's not unusual. I mean, it, it, it is still like... What a different world, like from the one that we live in. Mm -hmm. uh, my son's 16. Uh, I'm not going to let him take on the vanguard at crazy i love you samuel but no uh but this this was kind of his job right he'd been raised to do this uh you know instead of taking algebra he was you know taking swordcraft and so this is basically what he's supposed to do now now he doesn't have a lot of experience doing it this is his first foray uh so he's surrounded by more experienced men who are there to kind of you know watch him and make sure nothing goes wrong but at least theoretically, from Edward's standpoint, they really shouldn't have to do much because in the Wagenberg on either side of this, in the wagons, and then spread out in the huge wings to either side are all the archers. And the French can't see them. And the idea is we're going to have the French, yeah, come charge, 
And when they get close, when they get in, in range, they're going to get pummeled with all these arrows uh, and, and they'll all die. <laughs> It'll be great. And that's the plan. And it, and it actually does work initially. It, it works initially. And then the Black Prince gets stupid. <laughs> I, you look, actually said pretty much that. I, well, I, for the record, that was, that was Walter Edgar saying the Black Prince <laughs> is stupid. Uh, <laughs> uh, I still got to get into England, uh, though I wonder how, how I do sometimes. Somebody makes a mistake. We'll say that. Somebody in the Vanguard makes it. The Vanguard leaves their position and go forward. They are not supposed to leave their position. And they, and they do. And the person in charge of the Vanguard is the Black Prince. So, yeah, I basically say in the book that, that the Black Prince is stupid. Yeah. He, you know, I think he's young. Uh, you he, know, he gets excited. Uh, yeah. He's impetuous. This is, I can really earn my spurs. Right. Right. And there are stories that he actually got captured. Yeah, which surprised a lot of people. Uh, it still is surprising people that this happened. But it's in source after source after source that he got captured. The, the, the thing that happens with Crazy is that afterwards, the English tell one story about what happened. And basically, everybody else is telling a different story. But the story that historians have followed is the English story. They've like ignored everything else and said, well, that, no, we don't like that story. This is the story of what happened. And that story is one of absolute glory. So it talks about the Black Princes in the vanguard, the front line, and goes, goes out and is out in the thick of things. And other men get worried about him and, and go to the king and say, you know, my Lord, your, your son is hard pressed. And Edward famously says in the Chronicle of Foissart, let the boy earn his spurs because the spurs are the mark of knighthood, right? Which on any logical basis, right? It's the crown prince of England. If you think he's in trouble, you don't sort of haughtily like, well, you know, let him be. Like, no, you help him. But this is this was the story. And that, and that some of these men went anyway because they were worried. And they sort of go out there and they find the black prince lounging against a pile of corpses. And they're like, are you okay? He's like, oh, no, I'm just, you know, just resting for the next wave, right? So I'm going to add to the pile. It's... I mean, that's bonkers. Like, that's not even remotely going to be accurate. But that's the story that everybody's told and retold because that's the story that the English wanted told. And most of the people who have studied this battle have been English because, you know, it was their big victory. There's not a lot, a huge uh, uh, pile of people in France that are desperate to, to study this this battle in which they they they, they didn't do well. So, so, yeah, when you look at the other sources, they are basically universal, what happens is the prince goes out and gets captured, um, is actually, he actually surrenders, um, goes down on his knees, his banner is put on his knees, which is the, the absolute sign of surrender capitulation. Don't kill this guy. He's the black prince, right? That's his, that's, he's wearing all the gear. Don't kill and this guy. And he's worth a lot of money. He's worth a lot of money, a literal king's ransom, essentially. He's the crown yeah. prince. You know, in that moment, the Hundred Years' War, I mean, I think, is effectively over, right? All, all they got to do is get him off the field, and you've captured the crown prince. You're going to, like, England's basically already bankrupt. You're going to take everything they've got left. Like, it's, it's basically a done deal. The, the agreement that would be required to get Black Prince would be huge. Michael, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Michael Livingston about his latest book, Crazy, The Battle of the Five Kings in the Hundred Years' War. And we're in the midst of, the, of this battle, and the Black Prince gets saved. Yeah. He gets saved. The stories differ a little bit on how this happens. My favorite one is the least likely to be true. Uh, but my favorite of these stories is is that the French start people on the French side start bickering about who gets to claim the ransom, right? Because this is going to be the biggest ransom anybody had seen, and uh, you know it's like, well, you're not you're not high class enough, right? You know, you got to be a certain stature to get this ransom, and so they start fighting each other over this, and that gives. Uh, the Black Prince, either the chance to scurry away. Some of our sources have him kind of like running away. Others have a contingent of men led by the Bishop of Durham come sweeping in, uh, grab the kid and head back into the lines. So yeah, he, he manages to get out of this, but it's, 
Close. <laughs> okay. Uh, we've got about fifteen minutes, so we really got to we really got to move along now. Yeah. This is the first day. This is the first day of the battle. Yeah. And the losses the French have are horrendous. Are absolutely enormous. Yeah. And and they they lose just as Edward had lost at Caen. Uh, Philippe loses command and control uh, to the point when he flees the battlefield. Um, as night is falling. This is a battle that starts probably around 3 p.m. and goes all the way to nightfall. Yeah, it started really late. It did start late. This is atypical. And and, and the, some of his, well, depending upon the source, some of Philippe's advisors said, no, we need to wait till tomorrow. Right, right. We don't know who made the the biggest pitch that we you know we should fight today. Uh, but yeah, there were definitely voices that said, no, don't, don't go in. Look, they're not going anywhere. Like, let's just surround them. Every day they get weaker. And, you know, when we're ready, we'll go in. Uh, but the decision was made to go in now. Uh, and they go in in sort of uh, chaotic waves and and just, like, keep throwing men at the English. And the English position is, is absolutely superior here to the point that, uh, yeah, their men are just getting mowed down. Well, and as we know, battlefields become chaos. Yeah. And so some of the, that first wave start turning back and they're running into the second wave. Correct. This is exactly what happens with the first wave attack because the first wave attack is actually these, these Genoese crossbowmen who go in and the, the French are so, so unaware of the English longbow threat that they send these crossbowmen in without their armor or their shields or anything. They're just basically like you or I marching out there with a crossbow and and, and they, they appear to get it one, one shot off. And then they're sitting there trying to crank on another load or whatever. And then the longbowmen all kind of stand up and boom, these guys are all, all shot. And then those who aren't shot run away as I would, but unfortunately then run into the next wave of the attack, which is uh, a French cavalry that then horses meet man going in two different directions, sends the cavalry line into disarray men being flown off horses, just everything, you know, chaotic, which is now a big mass that's easier to shoot for the next longbow shot, right? So it just compiles and compiles. It, I mean, the, it's thousands die on that first day. It, it would have been just piles of bodies on the field. It's frightening. And the battle continues. There is a second day battle, but the main one is is that that first day the one that everybody remembers is the first day and it, you know and when i started working on crazy 10 years ago basically everybody was like it's a one-day battle the, I, the fact there was a second day was unknown uh the, there is a second day battle and the the second day some sources say more men die on the second day it was really more of a mopping up wasn't it, it was a mopping up and then there was uh there was another army that shows up late and the loss of command and control that Philippe had experienced was so extreme that this this next French army can show up without having received word. Like the first one got wiped out. And so they come marching up and they get mowed down. It's it's uh it's an absolute disaster from a leadership perspective for the French. It appears they don't even call a general retreat at any point. The king just kind of leaves. And so his men are dying all over the field. They don't even know that the king has left. It's it's not good. In addition to finding a different battle site, yeah, the whole question of how many people were killed, uh, the way the medieval chroniclers did it, they just counted. Well, in this case, they were king. The king of Bohemia was killed. Yeah. You know, the king, the dukes, the whatever, and so many knights. They don't count the literally thousands of yeah. yeomen who were there with the pitchfork or the. Yeah, it's tremendously sad, and I. You know, I, I, the book is getting a lot of attention because, as you said, I, I changed the battle site because the traditional battle site doesn't make any sense whatsoever to me. And nothing's ever been found on that site. And there should be tens of thousands of artifacts. And have things been found on your alternate site? Nobody has searched it. Oh, nobody. Nobody has searched it. The way it works there, you'd have to have permission of the French government to do it. And the French government has not yet ter been terribly excited about making that happen. Well, they don't want to undo their, their <laughs> tourism site. Okay. I think that's it, honestly. Uh, okay, back to the casualties, Michael. <laughs> yeah. The casualties, uh, this, is, this is the thing that I find uh, most tragic, is that, that, that there were thousands and thousands who died there. We have one source that nobody had looked at you know, until we started researching Crazy, 
me, me and a couple of colleagues that was written, we think actually literally on the field of battle from a herald who was tasked with identifying the dead. And this was a poem. It's a poem. He writes a poem. It, we, we think it is what's called a poetic mortuary role. He's trying to sort of preserve the names of the dead so that they can be, uh, have prayers uh, said for them. And, and this is, and, and this is a, a known thing, and it is known sometimes that it's done in poetry. All right. And you mentioned he was a herald, and this is important because he was looking for the banners right. or the, the shields or whatever that would identify the nobility of the knights. Right. Okay. Effectively the dog tag of the time. Yeah. Right? They didn't have dog tags. They had their banners and such. So, yeah, he knows that stuff. That's his job. And so he's called in to identify this stuff. And writes this poem about it is it is the single most moving poem that I have ever read. Uh, his name is Colin de Beaumont, and it is amazing. He identifies more dead than anyone else uh, of the thousands and thousands who died there. He identifies thirty three, and that is heartbreaking to me. But it does, as you say, speak to the way that so many of this uh, of the of the people in charge thought about things. You know, Edward, when he writes home, we have his letter that he writes after the battle. It, yeah, he says, oh, I, I killed Lord so-and-so and Lord so-and-so and, and, and a bunch of other men. Like, it's just, yeah. It was almost like, you know. Right. He says, I didn't lose anybody. What he means is I didn't lose anybody that I consider worth naming. So the, the French are completely routed. Completely. Uh, yeah. Now, Edward decides what he's going to do. He, he decides now he's going to march to Calais. And besiege it, which is a major port city and is in a great position to have access to England. Of course, this is, you know, just across from Dover, where the ferry runs still today. And it also has ready access to the ports of the Low Country uh, and the, the merchant trade there. So it's a terrific location to get. And it takes him... Takes me a year. Almost yeah. a year. Yeah. Uh, but... That is the way history has been written. Is that this was his goal? From, <laughs> this is what he was meant to do. This is this is what his his yeah. goal was from the beginning. Which I don't, which doesn't make any sense to me. I you know I go back to, you know for instance that moment right after he crosses the the Blanche Tack, and he's faced this question of which way to go around the forest. Well, he he goes inland effectively um, to get closer to Abbeville to go around that way, which brings him closer to his enemy. Not not great. The other road option he has, which runs close to the marshes, which is its own problem, but that's the road to Calais. If that's where he's going, that's the road he would have taken. And instead he like walk, he literally walks across it. We, like I can pinpoint on the ground where he crosses the road to Calais. He knows it's the road to Calais. He doesn't take it. So I don't think he had intention to go into Calais until he's won at Crecy. He realizes I got basically no Nobody to stop me from what I want to do for the next couple of weeks or whatever. Let me just march up, besiege Calais. Of course, he thinks it's going to fall very quickly, uh, and it does not. Uh, and ultimately, you get the story of the burghers of Calais and all that from that. All right. When you're reconstructing battle sites, you say you have a battle reconstruction toolkit. I do. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as I say, when I get called in, there are certain things that, that I just do as a matter of basic science to me. One of them is finding the roads, right? Reconstructing that. Um, the landscape, I'm somebody who believes that, that a battle is its ground, that you can't understand a battle without understanding the terrain. Um, and understanding it, especially from the position of the men who were there. These, they don't have aerial photography or something the way that we have now. Well, you and I, before we went on, on mic, we're talking about Parker's Ferry here in South Carolina during the yeah. revolution. What we now know is totally different from what is the story that's been told for two centuries. Right. Which is great. I love it. And, and Parker's Ferry is, is an exact instance of this happening where everybody has this story and, and actually they would have gotten angry with you if you would have said that wasn't the story, right? Because that's what the tradition is. When we actually find the correct site, suddenly everybody's actions on the field make sense. Right. Like, you know, why did that side side lose? Well, this is why. And you can see it on the ground. It's amazing how once you get the right site, all the puzzle pieces suddenly click together and form a complete picture. And that's exactly what we've had happen with Parker's Ferry here in South Carolina. And and I think, you know, is the case here with Cray C. We move the site and everything and suddenly everything makes sense. Because there are descriptions of 
circling the wagons and what have you. And that would be difficult given the terrain at the current site. Uh, yeah, and so would so would the charge. Uh, I don't, as you point out, there's a there's an escarpment and a drop of about fifteen feet, and so if the had the knights been charging across, they would have. Yeah, they would have. They, all the horses would have died, and the men on them. Uh, yeah, I mean this this goes back to you know I think last time I talked to you when we were talking about my book on uh, the Battle of Brunnenberg, we talked about how few historians walk the battlefields and how necessary that is you know battle cowpens it doesn't matter like it's important you got to be there right whichever yeah. battle it is yeah all right michael alfred's giving me the wind up sign any last words for our listeners before we sign off today history is important y'all and i'm i'm glad you're listening to a show like this that talks so much about history because it really it, it's every part of our lives and it's so easy to kind of not think about that but we need to always have that in mind All right. Well, Michael Livingston, author of Crazy, the Battle of Five Kings, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. We've had Michael Livingston on the show before. He's an incredible historian, a great writer, and a very good conversationalist. But we can go back and forth from the Middle Ages to the American Revolution and talk about the importance of casualties, of location, and how history records what happened or maybe what some people thought didn't happen. It's always an interesting conversation because, as Michael pointed out in his closing remarks, history is important. This is Walter Edgar. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.